I wrote the lesson today and, and I've put it together. I have no clue how much of this we'll get through. I don't know what the best way to teach this is. So humor me also if, if the teaching is not what it needs to be. Because I do recognize we will have people who are here who don't do the readings. We will have people here who are brand new. We will have people here who've just had a really bad week and fallen off the wagon. We're going to have all sorts of that, and I want class to be effective for everyone. So humor me as I work through this, and I'll try to do the best um, that I can. And, and where I need to, to improve, uh, tell me gently, and I'll try to do that as well. So with that, the Context Bible. If you had a chance to do it and you had a chance to look at it, this week's readings leading up to today is what I want to cover in class. And I want to try and explain to you why those contextual verses were used in support of the main passage, which is what David preached on this morning. So my goal is not to re-preach the main passage, but just to reference it enough so that we can then see why these Bible materials were used as context to support that passage. So with that, the theme of from creation that David talked about this morning, John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So that was our first reading. That started out our new year. And in context of that, as I was putting it together, I was thinking, what, what, what fairly can we say John may have been thinking when John wrote this? John had a Bible, but John's Bible was the Old Testament. And when John wrote, he clearly knew his Bible. And he didn't have a computer to footnote. And he didn't have insert ability. And he didn't have a, a, a printing press that was going to make mass volumes of what he was writing. So he wrote in the way he did in his day, but he wrote with a great understanding of what the Old Testament scriptures were. Please remember, the New Testament church used the Old Testament extensively as their Bible. Paul told his, his, his uh, churches to study. He wrote to Timothy to study and show himself approved unto God as a workman, rightly handling the scriptures. That's the Old Testament. He told them that, that all Scripture is inspired by God. That's the Old Testament. Profitable for preaching, for teaching, for training, for rebuking. I, and, and now we have a fuller set of Scriptures because we have the New Testament as well. But at the time that was written, so John's writing this with Old Testament in mind. And look at the words he uses. Just pull out a few of these words with me. What are the words that are used over and over and over in these verses? John says, in the beginning was the word. And he was in the beginning. So we have that beginning. And look at how he repeats the word, word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And in a sense, you get that also with he. Because that's telling you the word, he. Now in the Greek, he, she, and it are all in this same genre of a word here. It, you could say it was in the beginning, but because John later tells us the word became flesh and makes it clear that the word is Jesus, the translators properly choose he here instead of it, because that's what John's intending. 
But that's the word, the word, the word, he, all things were made through him, without him. You see the emphasis he's putting on the word, on him, on he. What else does he emphasize? God. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. One last word I want you to see that's used repeatedly in here. Made. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything. Whoops, I should have highlighted made. That was made. So we've got these words. In the beginning, the word with God was God. God made. Nothing made without him. And those words find their context and meaning in the Old Testament. So let's look at some of these passages together. Genesis 1 is the first place we turned in the reading. Genesis 1 begins in the Greek, N-R-K, epoiosen hotheos. Epoiosen hotheos. In, it looks like E-V, because the Greek word for uh, letter for N is a V. It's a new. So E-N-N-R-K, A-R, it looks like an X, and it looks like an N with a tail. It means R-K. We get archaeology from it. We get archaic from it. Um, it means in beginning. Epoiosin created. He created specifically. It's what epoiosin means. God. doesn't mean he created God. It means he created, and then it uses the subject God. Okay, I've just bored you to death. Ignore all of that. Don't worry about it. What I want you to know is the Greek that John writes is exactly the same as the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the church used at the time of John. Except he substituted one word. In the top you can see it. In the top it says, in the beginning, he made God. God made. And John changed that to say, in the beginning, took out he made and put Already was. That's what that word hain means. In the beginning, already was the word. And the word, logos, L-O-G-O-S, is the exact same place because it has the exact same meaning as God. And it's the reason he wrote it in the order he did. He wants us to realize this. So when you read Genesis 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and without form. And the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. When you read that, John wants you thinking about Jesus. Look, look, just, just for a moment, look at Genesis 1. Um, this, is, this is really cool, because there's a depth here that we're going to miss if we don't see what John is doing. Look at the very beginning. So it's starting out, in the beginning, God created. And this Greek is the exact same as John's Greek, except instead of created, it's got already was. In the beginning, the word already was. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was void and without form, darkness over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now look, God, what's that word? How do you say something? 
What do you use? Words. Words are already there. Words are already there. Words are with God before anything is made. Words are with God. Words are God. How do you separate what God says from God who's saying it? When you hear a word, all that word that you're hearing, we know this now because of physics, all it is are waves, sound waves that are generated by the air coming out of my lungs with my voice box vibrating and my mouth and tongue and lips and palate forming distinct shapes to shape those sound waves so that when they hit your eardrum, you understand what was in my mind, the words I spoke. In the beginning, the words already there because God speaks Creation into being. God says, let there be light. God saw the light was good. He separated. God called the light day. Called the darkness night. And what happens the next day? God says, let there be an expanse. And God calls the expanse heaven. And the next day, God, whoops, he did. There you go. The next day, God said, let the waters. And he saw that it was good. And he called them the seas. God, oh, can't see that either. Okay, you see, I've got that New Year's jitters. God said, and God saw, oh, there he goes. And he saw it was good. Next, God said, each time, God said. And then you get something very unusual. Look at verse 26. Ah, there we go. Then God said, uh, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. John wants you to know that Jesus is in the beginning. That Jesus is the one here. That Jesus is the Word. That Jesus is creating. That Jesus is not just with God, but Jesus is God, as David pronounced so well. So if we go back to the PowerPoint. When we read Genesis 1, we got the context that the Word already was in the beginning before the creation. In the context of Genesis 1, we have God speaking creation. If God is speaking creation, the Word's got to be there. How do you speak without words? And John wants us thinking in this way. And it's God speaks, and then when God says it, when the words are spoken, what happens? It is. It's the word creating. So you see how that fits in contextually? Okay, Genesis 1. Now, what else did we read? We read Psalm 136. I love this psalm. Let's look at it briefly. 
Psalm 136 is just, to me, one of the most special things I think John had in mind as John was writing. And uh, the Holy Spirit as he was inspiring. Look at Psalm 136. This is um, a worship psalm. It's a psalm that, you know, we think, how much of the Bible did that guy really know? Well, the Holy Spirit, of course, knew the whole thing. But even beyond that, John... This is a worship psalm. It's written where the people respond back to a reader. And it was used, you know, we sing our songs at church. These are the psalms that were sung by the early church and by the Jewish synagogues even before the early church. So, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. And then the congregation would respond, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then the the reader, the cantor, give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. John, you say that all the time. You learn that phrase. You learn that psalm. I love this psalm with creation, especially when you bring John into the picture. We could go back to the PowerPoint. Because now, John is telling us, here's your memory test. We praise God in creation because... So if Jesus is in creation with God and Jesus is creating, we're going to see in Jesus what? God's... His steadfast love endures forever. What better way to open up the gospel of Jesus Christ than to remind everybody that in Jesus we see the final statement of the steadfast love of God who endures forever. And it sends a chill down my spine. We're seeing how cool is it to live in 2014? To see what God has woven together over thousands of years. To confirm with us his steadfast love endures forever. And that's what we see in the word. And that's what John reminds us. Okay, Psalm 136. I got to keep moving or I'll just get through a day. Isaiah 40 verses 12 through 31. This is pretty cool, too. Um, And if we don't get through it all, then maybe that's what we do. We don't get through it all, and you get the handout, and you can go read it. Isaiah 40, 12 through 31. Look at this. This is one of my favorite passages in Isaiah. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens, measured them, with a span Who enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? Who weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who decided how much land there is going to be? 
Who decided how broad the heavens are going to be? Who decided? Let me ask it this way, Isaiah says. Who measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows God his counsel? God did his stuff. Do we have anything on God? Do we have to give God counsel? Do we need to give God advice? Do we need to tell God who God is? Did God need to consult with us before he made anything? Did God need us to, let me help you understand, Lord. Did, did we have to teach God justice? Did we teach God knowledge? Did we show God understanding? The answer is categorically, no. Say it in Spanish. No. (laughs) Bilingual. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're the dust on the scales. He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All of the nations are like nothing before him. They're less than nothing. Less than emptiness. Who are you going to liken God? You're going to compare him with something? You're going to make something like God? And then he ends it by saying, verse 25, if we skip ahead a little bit, to whom are you going to compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calls them by name, by the greatness of his might, by the word, Jesus Christ. Because he's strong in power, not one is missing. Don't think for a moment God doesn't see you. Don't think for a moment he doesn't understand you. Don't think for a moment he's missing what you're doing in your life. Don't think for a moment you live in oblivion to God. Or an afterthought to God. If we go back to the PowerPoint. Isaiah is saying the Word. The Creator God. What John tells us is the Word. Is far beyond people or nations. This is something. Jesus is something much greater. This is why in Paul's mind. It's so hard. It's David Fleming's step back. What moment? Where Paul would write that God, Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, something he had to hold on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And then humbled himself to people. It's mind-blowing. And John's gearing us for that. Isaiah 40, Psalm 104. Psalm 104, if we read it, we see people should be moved to praise By the creation of God. The creation of God should move all men to praise. Now you might be saying. Well. I'm not sure about that creation stuff. It might be uh, that this whole world evolved. I don't care if you say that or not right now. Because if you think that. You of all people ought to be saying. Praise the Lord. Who could design a system like that? 
with enough foresight to know that in the end there would be this group of people assembled together at Champion Forest Baptist Church in the year 2014 to worship Him? Because you tweak the dials just a little different and it doesn't turn out that way. So this isn't debating exactly how God did it. What this is saying is, regardless of how God did it, He's created this world. And is to be praised for that. Not praised like, hey, you did good. But praise in the sense of, okay, this is, this is a whole different thing. I mean, what am I? If the nations are the dust on the scales, I'm one guy in the nation. God, so far removed. And what John has done in John 1, if we go back to the PowerPoint, what John has done in John 1, 1, is he had said, yes, that God is not just so far removed, but that God came down. And that God's become part of you. And has written himself into your story because you are his story. That's an amazing thing. So we end, and the second day we still looked at this, but we looked at it through Job. And I took the last couple of chapters of Job, almost last chapters, and I put them on there. And here's the reason why. Let's remember the story of Job. Job's this great guy, loves the Lord, he's got a great life. But there's a spiritual battle that Satan wages with the life of Job. Where Satan takes Job and he strips him of so much that is the value in life. Job loses his children. Something I cannot comprehend. Job loses his money. He loses his health. And in the midst of that, Job's friends come to comfort him. Because they have words of wisdom to help him through the difficulties of life. And it's salt on his wounds. And they say things to him like, well, you know, Job, I feel real bad about what you're going through, but it's probably all your fault. You've sinned. I think you just need to go ahead and admit to God this is all your fault and and get on with it. Job says, I don't see the sin that I've done to cause this. This is not justice for my sin. Well, maybe you did it when you were in the womb. You might have sinned in the womb. I mean, who knows what goes on there. It's dark. <clears throat> Real possible you were you're like kicking extra hard. Probably caused indigestion, morning sickness. I bet it was like the whole, not just the trimester. It was like the whole nine months. It's probably your fault from the womb. Job says, I'm not buying that. Then his wife, Job's wife, says, look, I don't know if this is your fault or not, but you're not just stinking up your life, you're stinking up my life too because I've lost my money and my kids and now I've got a husband whining all the time because he's sick. So why don't you just curse God and die? Well, wife, thank you very much for urging me to go to the other side of the grave. I really appreciate that. That's just what I needed right now. But no, I'm not going to curse God and die. Naked I came from the womb. Naked I'll return. Now there, at the end of the story, there's some young guy that comes up to Job and actually has some pretty good counsel. But Job won't even take his counsel. 
Job just says, this is not fair, God's not right, and I'm calling God on the carpet, and that's where we pick up the reading. And the reading, God says, a hot shot. Where were you? Where were you when I created the world? Come on, smart guy. Where were you when I laid out the mountains? Where were you when I decided how the land would be? Come on, you've got all the knowledge. You tell me. Where were you? What did, what measurements did I use? What went into my decision making process on how to stretch the heavens out? Tell me. Because if you can't tell me these things, you have no right to question who I am. I'm God. And you need to be in the right place before me with the right attitude. Job says, sorry. (laughs) You're right. And as a righteous man, he is moved in repentance. Because that's the response. There's no purpose of God that's ever going to be thwarted. And God says that to Job, and we know that's true for Jesus. And you can look at Jesus and you say, but I don't understand this. But I don't understand that. And when John's writing his gospel, people who are reading it, reading it in context, who know the story of Job, will be recognizing that he's saying, you may not understand all of the things that happened to you because you worship the Lord. And you may not understand all of the things that happened in your life. But Jesus is the Lord. And no purpose of his will be thwarted. And when you read this book and you read about Jesus being crucified, you're going to read about his resurrection. Because no purpose of God can be thwarted. No purpose of the word can be thwarted. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And all things were created by the word. Without the word was not anything made that was made. Day one and day two of your reading. Now, if you kept going, we got to day three. The theme of light and life. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What are the words you see repeated there over and over? Life. In him was life. The life was the light of men. What else do you see? Light. The light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What else do you see? Darkness. It's light versus darkness. Now, there are some scriptures that John's drawing on. And so many of us, when we read John, we just read John 1.1 and we think, oh yeah, I got that with creation and all. And we sometimes forget that he didn't just start his book that way. He does it through the whole book. I'll tell you what. Commercial moment. The most thrilling part of this for me, putting it together. The book of Revelation. I was scared to death I was going to wind up with the book of Revelation at the end of the year and I was going to have all these genealogies and things that just didn't fit at all. So I did the book of Revelation first. And I've worked back from there. There's not a phrase in Revelation that's not found in the Old Testament. The context of... under You cannot understand Revelation if you don't understand the Old Testament. It's mind-blowing. But... Hey, we don't get there till November. So like if you're checking out, come on back. 
Psalm 27. Let's look at it for a moment. Light and life. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. John's saying it's the word. Logos. Jesus. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom will I fear? He's the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. Adversaries and foes, they stumble and fall. If an army encamps against me, I'm not going to be afraid. I've asked one thing that I'm seeking after from the Lord. One thing, here it is. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, inquire in his temple. He'll hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He'll conceal me under the cover of his tent. He'll lift me high on a rock. And he continues. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious, answer me. You've said, seek my face. Now think about John writing this. John says it's Jesus who's the light in life. If you want to seek the face of God, whom do you seek? Jesus. As, as uh, David did a great job pointing out the Greek word pros in, in uh, John 1, 1, that it's right face to face. It's, it's next to. The word was face to face with God. This is, Jesus is the face of God. My heart says, your face, Lord, I seek. Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn away your servant in anger. Don't cast me off. Don't forsake me, God of my salvation. Lead me on your way. This is the psalm that starts out with Jesus and God as the light and life of salvation. So we have in Psalm 27, if we go back to the PowerPoint, we have reading, the Lord is light. The Lord is salvation. The Lord's the stronghold of life. The Lord removes fear. In addition to Psalm 27, we looked at Psalm 36. In Psalm 36, it talks about how darkness is wicked. It talks about how light and life are God's steadfast love and His righteousness. It's very much what John's already been saying. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. For His steadfast love endures forever. You get that in Psalm 36. And I'm running out of time so we won't look at it together. But it specifically deals with these words from John. And it says, in darkness is wickedness. But in light is life and the steadfast love of the Lord and righteousness. In addition to Psalm 36, we took out two sections of Psalm 119. Now, Psalm 119, if we go back here for a moment. Psalm 119 is long. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's got 22 huge sections to it. And each section starts with a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So the first section starts with the letter Aleph. Can't see it? Ah, there we go. First section starts with the letter Aleph. And the second section, which which uh, is written, I don't write Hebrew very well, but it's sort of like that. The second is written with the Hebrew letter Beit. 
We get Bethlehem from it. Hebrew letter bait. It's really hard to read because it's got these 22 sections, which makes it over 150 verses long. But each section is kind of its own bite-sized morsel as a result. So you can just take the section that's the A or the B or uh, uh, my name's Mark Lanier. I'm particularly fond of the M and the L section. Might as well. There is a section in there that says, Oh, how love I the law. Psalm 119, we looked, we just carved out two sections because there are two sections that echo what John, or or that John is echoing, I should say. It's this section, Psalm 119, 105. This is the noon. And when it says noon there, it looks like none, but uh, no, it's pronounced noon. It's the Hebrew letter noon. Kind of like that. So the Hebrew letter noon is what starts this passage out. And this passage says, your, what's that? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Look at this. Give me life according to your Word. You see that? Tell me John's not steeped in Scripture when he writes that the Word is the light of God that gives life. He's echoing Psalm 119, 105 through 112. Again, 129 through 136, a later letter. This is the letter pay. It's also the letter Fay, depending on whether it's got a dot in it. But the letter Pay, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light, imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. This is, if we go back to the PowerPoint, fantastic. John's letting us know we can look to Jesus. And in Jesus, in the word, is the lamp to our path, the light to our path, what's going to show us in the difficulties of life, who and what and where we need to be. It is in Jesus Christ that we have... Look, uh, there are days that are just wretched days. I I feel bad saying that compared to Job, okay? But not compared to Job. I haven't even remotely had a wretched day. But there are days that are just not fun days. But oh, to look to Jesus and to know that there's meaning and purpose in even the worst even the most mundane, to know that if the adversary of all humanity himself, if Satan is to encamp against me and pick me out by name and say, I'm taking that boy down, that there is one who, if I look to him, is my light, who will show me the path, who will, yes, who will redeem me, praise God. And I have that assurance as assuredly as he has come died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. 
and life's different. Life is different. That was Psalm 119. We would also look at 1 John 1, 5 through 10, where John says that God is light. The same John who wrote that Jesus is light says God is light because they're interchangeable. Jesus is God. He doesn't have the Justin Bieber issue. I was proud of David pulling that one out. Jesus reflected God's perfection. He was God's perfection. And John says it changes how we live. So we've got that in 1 John 5, 5 through 10. And then in Colossians 1, 11 through 14, Paul goes further and says, not only has Christ conquered the darkness, but he's made a way for us through the darkness. It's the same principle. He's the lamp to our feet to walk through the darkness of life. He's also, if we remember that light is goodness and darkness is wickedness, he's the light, he's the goodness that shows us how to live in the midst of wickedness. I had a man say to me in Louisiana yesterday, so-and-so's betrayed me. So-and-so has betrayed me. And I said, yeah, you feel betrayed, don't you? He says, I feel like they just slept with my wife. That's the, and he had tears in his eyes. That's the depth he feels like he's portrayed, he's been betrayed. He says, what do I do with that? Well, there's great darkness in the wickedness that was done. But what is the path through the darkness we have in Jesus? It's forgiveness. It's a hard message. But it's the message. It's the hard message, but it's the message. So that was it. Now, we've got five minutes left, four and a half minutes. Let me tell you just briefly, John the Baptist. And, and you're thinking, when's he going to get to points for home? Your points for home are loaded in this set lesson. I'm not pulling them out for you today. If, if you all want me to go back to that, I will. But, but right now, we're just, this whole thing is home. John 1, 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So so we've now got the, the word and the light. And here he is that came to bear witness to the light. Luke 1 gives us, we took the Luke 1 reading about John's birth. And I found a couple of things fascinating in there that I hope you look for. First of all, it's very clear Luke wrote after interviewing eyewitnesses. Does that mean John's mother? John's father? He gives their names. We don't know who. But he's got accounts from eyewitnesses. And it tells a marvelous story. I find it very insightful to read that John the Baptist's father was a priest. Cousin of Jesus. So Jesus of the tribe of David also had some marriage from his relatives into the Levitical tribe, the Levitical priesthood. John the Baptist, his dad's a priest. He's a Levitical priest, the son of a priest. What should John the Baptist grow up to be? A priest. Instead, John the Baptist grows up with a higher, different calling to be the forerunner for the Messiah. And so John the Baptist 
spends his time doing that and says, and, and, and in the prayer that Zechariah gives for his son when his son is born, he says, my son is going to be the forebearer of the one who will give light to the world. It's the same theme. John's it's just woven so richly in Scripture. Then we looked at John the Baptist from Mark 1, 1 through 8. And in that passage, in it, 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 he references Isaiah 40. Mark does. Mark's giving Peter's gospel account. So they reference the Isaiah 40. To prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah 41 through 5 we also read. And Isaiah says. Isaiah 41 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her, her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. But look, in the midst of all of the sinfulness and the pain and the misery, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Yeah, I have two echoes in my brain when I read that historically. Now I'm going to have three. The two historical echoes is uh, Handel's Messiah. You know, every The other one is Martin Luther King's speech on the Washington Memorial Monument. Because he, you know, he's, he's looking for, you know, every mountain will be brought low. Every valley will be exalted. He quotes this passage. But now I've got a third and it's John. Because this is Jesus. This is so clearly Jesus, and all flesh will see it together. If we go back to the PowerPoint to end this. So, John preached repentance, preparing for the Lord to deliver that. John 3, 1 through 17 is where John goes a step further and he says, you're sinners, you need to repent. And this is why that's important. If we realize our sin, we see the need for a Savior. He's preparing the way for the Lord. If the people don't hear the repentance, if the people aren't tuned into their sin, if they're not realizing it's time to make decisions before God, they don't see Jesus. And it's no less true for us today. We will never see Jesus for who He is as Savior if we don't first see ourselves in need of one. So, with that, we have the Context Bible Week 1. I hope you'll join me for Week 2. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we just lift up and rejoice before you. It's so fun to be a part of what you are doing in this world. And we pray that your word will go forth and it will change us, our community, our nation, our world. Your kingdom will come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that we can play a role in that even as it's done within us, Father. It's our prayer. Through our Lord Jesus, the light, the world, the, the, the word, the creator, we pray amen. Amen.